Researchers want to hear from patients. Patients and their families want to be involved. Why is this so hard to do? My name is Kevin Fryert. My 30-year career at Pfizer gave me a chance to learn about many facets of drug discovery and development. When I retired, I started Salem Oaks to help patients understand the world of biopharmaceutical R&D so that they can be more effective partners and shape the future of medicine. We think that if patients and researchers got to know each other as people, the conversations would be much easier to start. Each month on Unprobable Developments, I will interview scientists, investigators, and patients who are actively working in medical research and development. Our goal is to help patients and those who care about them to get to know the kinds of people working on their behalf. This month on Improbable Developments, we are talking to Dr. Allison Bateman House. Dr. Bateman House is an assistant professor in the Department of Population Health at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine. She works in the field called ethics and has a recent focus on compassionate use and pre-approval access to investigational medicines. She and the group she works with at NYU have been quite active in the discussions around the vaccine that's coming out, gene therapies, and right-to-try legislation. Allison, we met on Twitter during Right to Try uh, activity, and that's where I learned about your work at NYU. But could you give our listeners just a short version of what it is you do as a bioethicist? Sure, Kevin. Uh, and by the way, thank you for letting me speak with you and your audience today. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So as a bioethicist, I'm concerned about, you know, medicine and, and technology and scientific and medical and clinical research. But unlike a, you know, a scientist who is actually saying, what is it we can do? Or, you know, we want to try to do this and, and let's figure out how to do it. My question is, you know, should we do that? And what are, the, what are the foreseeable consequences for whatever it is that you're thinking about doing those consequences? They can be good, they can be bad, they can be mixed, and just sort of how do we evaluate things and preferably evaluate them ahead of time so then we can make changes or even decide, you know, perhaps this, this avenue of research or this, you know, certain choice is, is something that in retrospect, not in retrospect, this is this decision is something that you know thinking through the the long and short implications of it perhaps we should not do excellent so i really like that not can we do it but should we so one of the just absolute joys of doing this podcast is i get to talk to people all across the research and development spectrum everybody who's involved and i don't know that bioethicist would be the first thing that people would think of like oh yeah there's someone so what particular role do bioethicists play in clinical trials? And why is that so important? Yeah, I mean, I don't think a bioethicist is normally what people have come in at their elementary school career day. So uh, we're, we're a, a novel breed to many people. So first off, not all bioethicists are involved in clinical trials at all. Like any field, it has its specialty. So you have some people who specialize in, you know, public health issues. You have some people who specialize in specific patient care issues. It's only, you know, those of us who are really interested in, in clinical research that would even start thinking about clinical trials. But with regard to clinical trials, the sort of thing that I 
uh, or another bioethicist would be involved in, they're really three things. So one is sort of policy formulation that provides the background context in which human experimentation happens. So clinical trials are a type of human experimentation. They're all types of human experimentation. You know, when you go to the, back when we went to the grocery stores and they had people there who gave free samples and then asked you whether you liked it or not, that's a, that's a form of human experimentation. So there, there's all sorts of types of human experimentation depending on the level of risk involved, depending on the funding source, depending on, you know, who's being recruited into it. Some of them are held to different standards than others. And so bioethicists are involved in the, in formulating the sort of background policies about how we evaluate what you can and cannot do in various types of human experimentation. And then with regard specifically to clinical trials, I spend a lot of time consulting with pharmaceutical companies, research institutes, individual scientists, funders uh, ahead of time about what's the best possible way we can do the trial. And then the other, the sort of third prong of what I do is uh, when a trial is in progress and then they hit a snag, uh, we tend to get called on for troubleshooting. And that's not a snag in terms of, you know, wow, we, we thought this drug was going to work and it doesn't look like it's working or, you know, the, the pharmacy accidentally defrosted our, our drug and now we've not got to wait for more. The, the problems that I'm called in on are ethical problems of, you know, wow, we didn't anticipate this, but now we have this thing that we're really concerned about and can you help us figure it out? Can you give us an example of one of those snags? That sounds very interesting and I understand you you know, talk about it generically, but could you give us a little more insight on it? Sure. I'll give you, I'll give you an example without naming any names or or giving details. But first, let me just say, from a patient point of view, when you go into a clinical trial, often, not always, but oftentimes that decision is motivated, at least in part, on self-interest. You're looking for something that's going to help you potentially be beneficial to you. And you think the, the trial offers you that opportunity. But from the, you know, sort of policy point of view, a clinical trial is research and research is being done by and large to develop generalizable knowledge that helps us understand, you know, just the the science of something. Obviously, if patients or or others who participate in trials, because again, not all trials involve patients, but if trial participants can benefit, well and good. Everyone wants to benefit people whenever possible, but that's not the ultimate purpose of a trial. The ultimate purpose of a trial is to answer a research question. So that's the background to say, you know, one of the, the more common sort of snags that you would encounter is if you have a trial in which there's randomization between arms and say one arm of the trial. Yeah, sorry, that, that's like technical, technical lingo. So, so there, there are various options that are, are given to people when they enter the trial in terms of some people are going to get a product that's being tested, uh, for example, an experimental drug to see if it works or not. And then other people are going to get something like a sugar pill or a placebo that we don't really expect to work, or at least not as well uh, as we would expect an actual 
you know, effective product to do. And we're going to be comparing those two outcomes in patients. Now, typically patients don't get to choose whether they get the active product or the placebo. That's a, a randomized decision made by a computer. Obviously, if a patient enters into a trial with the hope of benefiting from that experimental drug, they would probably want to get the experimental drug and not the placebo. So when they don't know what they're getting, that's called a blinded trial. And the idea is that sometimes you can actually have physiological improvement in your condition simply by thinking you're being treated. It's called the placebo effect. Uh, and it's a real thing. And it, ha it happens, you know, in all people. And so uh, you have these blinded participants who don't know if they're getting a placebo or if they're getting the active drug, but they have already decided to themselves that the drug is probably what they want, not the placebo. And so they're really interested in knowing whether they're getting the placebo or not, because if they are, they might drop out of the trial and say, that's not what I'm here for. And again, that, that gets back into this question of, is it research or is it intended to be direct patient care? If you go into research thinking it's direct patient care, you're probably not going to be happy to get assigned to placebo. So one of the, the snags that can occur is patients who are unblinding themselves. So for example, if you know the experimental drug has a side effect of nausea and fatigue, and you don't experience nausea and fatigue, you can decide uh, it's pretty unlikely that I'm getting this drug. I think I'm getting the placebo. Or, or even more extreme than that, you can have patients who go and, for example, have a commercial lab do a blood test to look and see if there's sign of the chemical compound in their blood. There are all sorts of ways that patients can unblind themselves. And that ends up impacting the utility of the trial. If people know what they're getting, and especially if people decide to drop out of the trial because they're not getting what they want, that uh, really has severe consequences for how effective that research is. And so that's a sort of example in which we might get called in and, and be asked to give advice on, you know, what do we do? We have these patients who are unblinding themselves. Should we go ahead and unblind everyone at this point? Because some people are blinded and some people aren't unblinded. You know, should we drop those patients from the trial, even if they want to stay on? You know, what, what do we do? So that's an example. Okay. That's, that's interesting because I was wondering what the ethical snag would be, because I've been on the side of it with the technical snag. We were running a trial experiment that we were doing was with a drug that when you put it into the capsules, inside the capsules, it separated out over time and, and it was very visually, you could tell what it was. And it was a kind of a milky substance too. It wasn't, it wasn't clear like saline. The FDA actually made us come up with a placebo that if you cut that capsule in half, which wasn't easy to do, it looked and tasted the same. And so the technical side is really tough. So the ethical question is, well, do we really need to do that? Or is there another way that we could, we could actually handle the issue of placebo-controlled? So the, the technical side, as you're pointing out, is very complicated. And great care is taken. You know, so if you have a, a trial where someone's randomized to plasma versus saline, great care is taken to, you know, conceal that that saline is actually saline. You know, there, there might be a bag over it so you can't see it or else there might be 
colorant added to it or something, great care is taken because we do know the, the placebo effect is very powerful. And so, so we want to, you know, try to make sure people that patients, you know, this is only in a trial where there is blinding, but we want to make sure that that blinding happens. But so the ethical concern is if the intention all along has been to blind people and now suddenly some people are unblinded, that's an, that's an equity issue. You know, do, do we have some patients who are able to make decisions with knowledge that other people don't have? And if so, how do we how do we respond to that? Do we say now everyone's going to get that that information so they can make the decisions on the same playing field? Or or do we say, you know, those people didn't follow the rules and so we're, we're just getting rid of them? So th- that was just an example. So most of the work I'm familiar with that you're doing is at the policy level. You write papers on policy. You write papers on um, different questions that are out there. And, and as I said recently, there's been some around vaccine trials and some around vaccine use and distribution that have been, you know, come to come to the fore in these days. But one of the things that I'm most familiar with is your compassionate use and pre-approval access. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means and what you've been doing in that? Well, I'll just say, Kevin, the reason that you know my policy work is because whereas policy only makes up about 50% of my work, the actual hands-on advice part of my work is generally done under, uh, you know, a certificate of confidentiality or a non-disclosure. So, so I'm not allowed to talk about that stuff. So that's why, that's why you don't know about it. The policy stuff is is intended for a a public audience. Um, And so as you pointed out, I, I have working, I've been working for uh, about, I'm going on my seventh year now of working almost exclusively on the topic of access to investigational medicines. So an investigational medicine is a, a drug or it could be a vaccine or, you know, even uh, you could stretch the term medicines to include a device. Uh, and investigational means that they have not been approved by a regulator, which in this country is the FDA, as being safe and effective for a particular condition. So as an ethicist who's interested in questions like, do people really have you know, valid grounds for understanding the decision that they're making to use this investigational drug? Did they have all the information that they needed? Uh, were they in a situation where they were really able to make a uh, informed decision or, or, you know, was it some situation where, you know, there's an emergency and there's a time pressure decision or there's heightened emotions or there's, you know, a feeling of being manipulated? Like, was there some other reason why we think that this decision might have been problematic for, for that individual, you know, equity issues in terms of, if some people are getting access to an investigational medicine, are similarly situated people also getting access or are, are you know, certain individuals getting priority access? And if so, is that for a good reason or not for a good reason? So th- these are all sorts of issues coming up with access to investigational drugs. Some of them apply across the board to whether that access is in a clinical trial or outside of a clinical trial. And some of them are, are more germane to just outside of trial access. And that's what you were talking about when you said compassionate use work. So that's non-trial access to an unapproved medicine. 
And we've seen numerous cases of this in the news over the years. And typically, they were really characterized by concerning attributes, especially in terms of the the justice aspect, the, the equity. It seemed quite frequently that people who succeeded in getting access outside of trials had sort of a, a big a big fish in their pond helping them. You know, they reached out to their senator who who then lobbied the company on their behalf, or their brother was a college roommate of somebody who now works for a pharmaceutical company. It seems like there are people who were able to use their connections or or other sort of social attributes to get access more so than the average Jane or Joe who, you know, were frequently denied access. And so that was something that I saw occurring repeatedly just in the news and decided it was really important for bioethics to take that on as an issue. And in bioethics, I wasn't seeing anyone doing a sustained job of addressing this area. And so I jumped into it. Yeah, that that whole situation of, you know, the stories that I hear are people who say, I, I was trying to get something and I had an advantage because I work in a healthcare system where I work for a pharmaceutical company, I have connections and even I couldn't do something or I could do something. It's just so out there that the people who work in the field know what's possible and know what they can do. It's still difficult and, and it should be, it shouldn't just be an open door type thing, but the advantage that they have knowing, you know, I think that the people who don't know just don't realize what they're stepping into. So I know that there's a lot of education that goes around or is needed for just a general public, people who are looking for something like this. Uh, they need to learn first. And I'll just say, we know inequity of access happens in clinical trials. I always pick on Wyoming, and I'm sorry if any of your listeners are from Wyoming, but I say, you know, if I'm in Wyoming, there's probably not a clinical trial site for my particular disease anywhere in my state. I mean, maybe one, you know, but but not many options. Whereas I am fortunate enough to live in Manhattan, where there's multiple academic medical centers within 10 miles of my apartment. And I have lots of options about where I would go if I wanted to get into a trial. And that is inequity just simply based on uh, geographic proximity to trials, which of course has implications for, you know, how long is it going to take me to get to the trial site? How much money is it going to cost? Am I going to have to fly versus drive versus take a taxi? Will I have to spend the night and pay for a hotel or pay for childcare to take care of my kids while I'm gone? So that's just a very sort of pragmatic and basic explanation of we have inequity in clinical trials, but they, but that seems to be something that uh, is not talked about much. And then we have inequity outside of trials as well. So I'm really concerned about it in in both levels. And then again, you know, interested in in the the issues of informed consent, et cetera. So so it's not just equity. It's just that I'm particularly passionate about equity, so I talk about it a lot. So what are the challenges to changing or influencing the policy level of that? You know, from the outside, it would seem perhaps that these are simple fixes. You know, well, let's just create a trial site in in Wyoming or, you know, well, well, let's just make sure that people understand, you know, the nuts and bolts of how to go about requesting a drug outside of a trial. 
And the fact is that it's just infinitely more complex on the ground once you try to address these things. So why isn't there a trial site in Wyoming? You know, is it that there's no hospital that has that particular piece of equipment that you need? Is it that there is a hospital that has that equipment, but there's already so many patients using it for just general treatment purposes that you can't also squeeze in people doing it, using it for a trial? Is it that, you know, the, the quality of life in Wyoming, I'm really getting myself in trouble now with Wyoming, but the quality of life is so miserable in Wyoming that the research staff who are there, you know, leave after six months. And so no one's really able to get a sustained research program up and running. It's just there's, there's so many factors that go into why things are available when and how they are, that it really makes policy change infinitely more complex than you would imagine. And it really entails that for any policy suggestions that someone like me would offer to be useful, you really have to understand those, you know, that sort of comp- that web of complexity very well in order to be able to offer things that are useful instead of being like, you know, well, great lady who lives in an ivory tower that could actually work, except for it doesn't address any of the on-the-ground realities here. So for, so for my work, I spend a lot of time talking with patient advocacy organizations, a lot of time talking with clinicians, funders of research, drug companies, basically just trying to get like a 365-degree view of the issue in order to be able to come up with a policy that you know, is responsive to the contextual reality. Yeah, the complexity... At that level of, you know, what, what are the people we're impacting here? You just gave great examples of that. But even as you're saying this, I'm like, well, when I say, oh, what, what are you working at a policy level? Who's setting policy? Who are you working with there? That in itself is extremely complex. So one of the things that I have had both the challenge and the fun of doing since I moved into this area is really doing like an in-depth and most ethnographic exploration of a particular topic, figuring out what policy solutions I think would be useful, and then trying to convince the people who would be involved that this is something that actually applies to them. So, you know, it's not pharma reaching out and saying, wow, we have this problem. Can you come up with a policy? It's me contacting pharma or Capitol Hill or a state legislator or a patient advocacy group or what have you and saying, you know, hi, you don't know me. You have no reason to trust me, but I want to explain to you that I have found a issue and I think I have a solution and I'd like to have some of your time and attention to try to convince you of this. And sometimes it works really well and sometimes you get a, a you know, the door does not open at all. So it's, it's both challenging. And when it works, it's really fun because you're able to to know that perhaps people didn't even realize there was an issue, but you've convinced them that there's an issue. You've convinced them of the validity of your offered solution and things are going to improve. Or if they're not going to improve, uh, it's because your policy solution was wrong and you need to go back and, and do it better. But I have to say, I've had a pretty good track record. So I'm very fortunate on that, knock on wood. You used a very big and professional word in there, ethnographer. Can you explain to people what you mean by ethnography? I mean, I think the easiest thing to do is to, to think about ethnography sort of like the anthropological context. So an, uh, an ethnographer in an anthropological context shows up to some 
new place, different country or a different area in the country or whatnot, and just spends a lot of time asking questions and walking around and observing things and, and just witnessing it and trying to figure out internally, you know, how does this place work? Who makes the decisions? Why are they making the decisions the way they do? You know, what, what are the relevant factors? Who is it who might appear to be making the decisions, but really that's just sort of a ceremonial role and, and they're not really the decision maker at all? You know, what is the law that is on the books but isn't enforced? And really just trying to get a very grounded understanding of what is happening in a certain situation. So we hear about that, you know, in National Geographic or something, you read about the ethnographer who goes to the Amazonian rainforest and lives for two years with, you know, people there and comes back with this detailed understanding of, you know, why they believe the way they believe and what they do and what they eat and how they sleep and, you know, et cetera. So I do a lot of that same thing, except for instead of me going to the Amazonian rainforest, I walk into a medical center, perhaps my own medical center, and start looking at who gets access to investigational medicines, how and why. Very interesting. And that's what, with this field, why it's so fascinating. You, you just pulled in anthropology. We're pulling in the technical side. We're pulling in. It's, it's just, to me, it's, it's a very intellectual field. And it requires the kind of study you just talked about. You need to stop and listen and watch and see what's going on and figure out. Now, what are the ethical dilemmas? What are the, what are the things that are going on? Fantastic. So what drew you to this? Well, let me just tell you, I'm a very interdisciplinary person. So I have worked as a healthcare provider myself. I am a historian of medicine. I work, I have worked and still work in public health. And then of course, I'm a bioethicist. So I'm a super interdisciplinary person who thinks that you use different types of approaches and different types of tools, depending on what the challenge is. But I certainly don't delude myself that I have all the tools or skill sets or knowledge. So uh, when I work on things, I tend to create very large groups of collaborators who bring different skill sets and experiences to the table. So for example, in my work on pre-approval access, we founded a working group on compassionate use and pre-approval access. It's up to about 30 people now. And, you know, only some of us are ethicists. So we have patient advocates. We have people who work in industry. We have people who used to work for the FDA. We have lawyers. You know, you name it. We even have a journalist. You know, we bring different people to the table to make sure that uh, we're able to understand the situation as well as possible from all the different vantage points as opposed to just relying on my own observations. And I wasn't, I wasn't trying to put you in a corner of knowing everything. So, uh, but it's really, it's, that's what I was talking about. It, it's so fascinating to bring all those strands in against a, whatever the problem is, you know, it's bringing, whether it's a large team, small team, whatever, but to, to be able to look at things in so many different perspectives, I think that oftentimes my experience in industry was people got very focused on their own singular perspective. And I spent a lot of time as a team leader trying to get them to look at everybody's perspectives. And that's why, that's why I like you so much, Allison, because you just, you work in that multiple perspective uh, way. Well, it's, it's fun to work with a team of people who come from different perspectives and different experiences because frequently we challenge each other, but it's always, it's always done in a, uh, you know, a 
respectful and collegial way, but, you know, I can look at a colleague and be like, you know, I, I actually, I, I think you're completely wrong about that. That's not how I would interpret this situation at all. And, and then we go back and forth trying to figure out some position that we can both uh, agree to. So what drew you to this work? This work being bioethics or pre-approval access to drugs or what? To bioethics and, and particularly that you're at NYU now. What was the, the journey you took? Oh, well, that's a very long story. I'll tell you, just because this is humorous, my first exposure to bioethics was actually in watching a Metallica music video. <laughs> I was babysitting. I had put the kids down to, to sleep and then turned on the TV to watch MTV because this is back in the day where MTV actually had music videos. And I lived out in the country where we did not have cable. So it was always a, a pleasure to find myself at some place that had cable. So I put the kids to sleep. It was uh, my time. Just wait for the parents to come home, put on the MTV to watch the music videos. And there was a music video by a group called Metallica that actually was very, uh, it was very narrative. It was, it was a story. It turned out later that they were taking clips from a movie. I didn't know that. But uh, it was a story about a soldier who had been Previously injured in war, he couldn't uh, communicate in any way, shape, or form. He was what we call uh, locked in, just able to think, but not able to have any uh, real uh, communication with the world. And you could hear the snippets of the film that were integrated into this video, him thinking, I want to die. And, and what you saw was the medical team around him doing everything they could to keep him alive, because that's what you do to patients. And that really started me thinking about, you know, wow, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a teenager, I'm in high school, and I've never really thought about any of this before. And this is fascinating. And I have to say, that's where my entree into bioethics came from, because I knew you know, as I started thinking about such things that I wanted to learn more about, you know, the sort of parts of medicine that we, we don't necessarily think about on the surface. I always knew I wanted to be involved in medicine somehow, but wasn't sure what it was until I started thinking about these other issues. And of course, that's really an ethical issue, right, about who gets to decide what treatment is given to a patient. And if it's the patient themselves who is unable to articulate or voice their preferences, who makes decisions for them and why? And it's such a striking example. And to hear that you were posed with that through a Metallica video is just, it's precious. It's precious. <laughs> I, I tell everyone, I'm like, you know, you're not going to have any idea what I'm talking about until you go look it up yourself. So go Google Metallica. The, the song is called One. Check out, the, check out the video. You'll see it. And then, like I said, it, it turns out, I found out later, it was actually based off of a movie. So if you want to see the movie, I think it's called Johnny Got, Your Gun, Johnny Got His Gun or something like that. So go check it out. So that's your teenage years. Where did you go from there? I mean, how did you? So I went to I went to university. I went to University of Virginia, again, knowing I wanted to do something medical, but probably not actually being a doctor or a nurse. So I was trying to figure out what that was. So, you know, I took a class in history of medicine, took some public health oriented things, just trying to figure out really what it was I wanted to do. Completely accidentally stumbled into bioethics, uh, but encountered a, a course in bioethics. It was actually a course for 
clinicians for, for practicing doctors and nurses, but they allowed me to audit it as an undergraduate and basically knew I had found my home right then and there. So what was your career arc like? You got an academic arc, but so I graduated, I graduated college and I knew that I wanted to go to grad school, but I also knew I didn't want to go to grad school right away. So I uh, did Peace Corps. I served in the Ivory Coast as a a lay midwife and got to see lots of things that um, I had never experienced before. A, having no experience with, mid, with, with midwifery, but also having had very, very limited uh, exposure to life outside of the United States. And then to actually, you know, move to a different country where people did not speak English and I did not have running water or electricity. And, and you know, it was a big culture shock, but I learned a lot. Came back to the United States enrolled in a uh, master's program in bioethics, did that, uh, just happened to luck my way into a bioethics internship at Johns Hopkins University, which then became my home for about five years, and then decided it was time to go back to school and ended up here in New York. And I did a, a master's of public health, and then finally my doctoral program both at Columbia, and then was lucky enough to get a job at NYU afterwards. And I say lucky enough, A, because academic jobs, particularly in bioethics, are are not plentiful. And B, my husband is a public school educator in New York City. And having had at that point numerous years of you know, work under his belt in the New York City pension system. He was not enamored of the idea that I might uproot us across the country. So, you know, fortune was very kind, but I ended up at NYU and I showed up at NYU at exactly the same time that there was a pre-approval access case dominating the news headlines. And since I had already had a pre-existing interest in that dating back to when I did that first master's of bio, bioethics I really just decided it was time to dive into that issue. And now, seven years later, I'm still working on it. So it's interesting. Everyone's career is shaped by events like that, whether it's the fortune of being to be able to be there, the connection of something you did earlier when you were still looking for what you wanted to do and you come back to it. And it's, it's great to hear that story and hear how it all links up. And now you've been doing that for seven years. And you show up as someone who's like really into this. And if people started asking questions around this, they're going to run into you somehow, um, either through some of your connections, uh, some of the other people you're working with, or just from what they've seen you doing. I'll just say, Kevin, I'll say the reason that I, I do have such sort of a large footprint in this area is really because there was <laughs> so little work on it for so many years. You know what I mean? Uh, it wasn't that I came in and, and eclipsed everyone, is that I walked into an area where many people had just sort of said, if we ignore this area, maybe it will, it will go away. So, I mean, it's a, it's a contentious and controversial and emotional thing. And I think, you know, it, it, you just were waiting for someone either brave or probably foolhardy is the better word enough to say, you know, it's going to be messy, but let's plunge in and see if we can make things better. The pandemic is something that's so far from our norm. You know, it's, it's changed so many things. I imagine there's tons of ethical questions that have come up. What are the, what are the major ones that you've seen and either been involved with or just, just had come up as issues that need to be addressed? Um, well, for one thing, access to investigational drugs is suddenly a topic that 
many, many more people are interested in than was before. So that's actually been nice because uh, in terms of just conversation with family and friends and whatnot, I don't have to laboriously explain what it is I do. They, they sort of like, yeah, yeah, I saw, I saw President Trump got access through compassionate use to something and other people can't get it. And yeah, I, I, I don't understand why he gets to be treated differently. So, you know, it, it's in there in the the common conversation at the moment, which is really nice to see. And I, and I hope that actually stays after the pandemic is no longer our, our top pressing issue, just because I think it's, it's really positive for people to be aware of, you know, how drugs are developed, who the stakeholders in that are, what sort of their competing interests are, and, and how to try to get a bunch of different stakeholders together to try to do things in the best possible manner. So, so that's a really good outcome of the, the pandemic for me. Uh, the really bad outcome personally has just been that uh, it's been nonstop work. So I, I just sort of joked that, you know, nobody knew what an ethicist was until suddenly now everybody needs them during the pandemic. So, so it's, it's been a very active time. I mentioned that about 50% of my work is actually, you know, actual advising of various entities, uh, corporate and, and non-corporate. And, I, and I'll just note for your audience that that is all pro bono. I don't, I don't take, I don't take money for, for doing that. Uh, I just, I think it's a, a need and I have a skill set for it. And so let's do it. But that massively increased during COVID in terms of it seemed that almost <laughs> every company that had a, a drug on the market decided that they wanted to give their drug away for free for treating COVID in the hopes that it might be helpful. And of course, you know, there's the, there's the sort of public benefit side to that, that, you know, if you have an antibiotic drug or you have some drug that given a mechanism of action, you think, yeah, there's some reason why it might be helpful in COVID. That's really nice that you're trying to address this huge pressing issue. And then, of course, there's the sort of strategic business side to it of, you know, wow, if it turns out that my drug actually works for this novel disease that has no treatment, you know, that's going to be a huge boon for the company. So, so I have had so, so, so many companies want to talk about setting up the, you know, these sort of compassionate use programs for people with COVID in hopes that they can either, again, help people or find a new market for their drug or probably more realistically, both. There definitely are motivations for doing it, several motivations. It's interesting, though, because I think as I listen to that, the question that I'm raising in my head is, so you want to put it out there for free? That's great. It's generous and could also help your business. but if we don't have the evidence that it's actually going to work against this disease, is it ethical to give it away free? Well, so, well, and, and to me, I, I ask that exact same question, except for I don't append on the word free. I say, you know, it is well and good. It is well and good that you want to help and you want to see if your drug is helpful, but to truly be of use in the fight against COVID, this needs to be done in a trial where we have rigorous data as opposed to a sort of freewheeling program of handing it out without real assessment. So I spend a lot of time talking with companies about that's great that you want to do an expanded access. Why do you want to do an expanded access? Is it simply because you think that's cheaper than doing a trial and you can get some data from it on the cheap? Or is it that you really, you know, have no intention of trying to, to get a, 
uh, FDA approval for your product for COVID. It's just you want to help people. Well, you know, what, why are you doing this? And, and let's see the best possible way to, to meet that goal that you have, or at least to, uh, to meet, you know, some of your goals. And then at the same time, trying to put some social accept <laughs> acceptability to that goal if the goal is, you know, too, too bureaucratic or corporate. And, and then, you know, the, Kevin, the, the other question that comes up for me is I say, you want to do an expanded access program for COVID for this product that you have. That's well and good. But looking at where your product is available and for what uses, I can see that there was already unmet need among people who needed access to your drug. So why is it that you are going to do, for example, a free compassionate use program in the United States when, you know, for example, no, no country in Asia or South America has your drug yet for its approved purpose. Like I would rather you give your drug away free to people who we know it's going to help than to give it away for free to people who it may or may not help but who also have access to other options, you know, and sometimes I'm able to convince them and sometimes I'm not, but it's at least a fruitful dialogue. Someone has to ask them the tough questions and and raise that different perspective because it it may not come up and just naturally. So, Allison, you just seem to be extremely hardworking. I mean, you've done so much, and you've you've got a passion for this and and a depth of knowledge here. What what, what do you do outside of work? What do you do for fun? How do you unwind? Well, unfortunately, since COVID has come to Manhattan, there is no outside of work. Work is nonstop, but I am hopeful that one of these days that will uh, will pass. I love to read. Uh, I used to love watching music videos, but now, of course, that's not really a, a thing available anymore. Uh, and I do love to travel, but that's sort of off the table at the moment. So if I were to get, uh, you know, a free hour at this point in time, I would probably go read a book. But I'm not really sure when I'll get a chance to do that for any non-work-related purpose. So just to close, if our listeners want to learn more about you or your work or where they can find you, where can they do that? So most of the work that we've been talking about today is the work I do through this Compassionate Use and Pre-Approval Access Working Group that I mentioned. So if you just Google NYU for New York University, NYU CUPA, C-U-P-A, you'll be able to pull up the website and we're in the middle of developing a YouTube channel. So one of these days you'll be able to get our YouTube videos, et cetera. The work I do on clinical trials, particularly for gene therapy trials is through a different working group that I haven't talked about, but you can learn about it just by Googling NYUPGTME. That's short for uh, Pediatric Gene Therapy and Medical Ethics. And I'm also on Twitter at A. Bateman House. So if you go uh, to Twitter and look up my handle, A. Bateman House, uh, you will see the workings of my mind uh, on, on random, random topics, some related to pre-approval access and some related to, you know, the state of my balcony garden or whatnot. So Wonderful. And I encourage everybody to go look for those different areas of work that you talked about and your, and your Twitter feed too. Um, you've always got like very on point type things. And then as you say, there's something random. I'm like, that doesn't sound like what Allison usually puts up, but it's very interesting. Um, so thank you so much for your time today and good luck getting through the the workload that suddenly uh, rolled over you. 
Well, it's nice to have the world decide that ethics is valuable. That's that's a good thing. So I shouldn't complain about that. But thank you for making time, Kevin. And I hope your your listeners uh, enjoyed hearing about the role of a bioethicist. Please subscribe to Improbable Developments wherever you get your podcasts. And tell your friends to give us a listen.